You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. You know, we talked about the song Splitting the Sea that we were introduced to last week. Um, Yesterday was just a, (laughs) a tough day. I had gone down to um, bring Jeffrey back up here. He was pulling an all-nighter at the hospital there at Pensacola. And Megan had already come on up with a baby. And so I went down there and uh, met him, uh, spent the night, but the next morning was meeting him near the hospital. And we were going to drive on up. And his car was having difficulty. And so anyway, we, um, we just decided, well, we're going to just, we're going to give it a try. We're going to try to get it home to... Um, Dr. Rogers, Eric Rogers, uh, I call him Mr. Goodwrench and let him look at it. So uh, we were clicking along doing fine, and but I could tell something wasn't right. And uh, it kept slipping a little bit and this and that, and trying to get into gear. And I got close to Mobile, and if you're familiar with Mobile Bay, you know there's a tunnel and you go through that. And I'm thinking, God, please don't let me break down in that tunnel. If I can just get through that dumb tunnel. So Jeffrey was behind me in my truck, and I told him I wanted to drive it and see if I could figure out what was wrong with it. And none of the gauges was working. Everything was, you know, nothing was working. I had no idea how fast I was going. I was just in the flow of traffic. So he, anyway, he pulled off, said he had to go to the bathroom. So here I go, going across the bridge, across Mobile Bay. And I'm coming to the tunnel, and as I get close to the tunnel, that thing is really looking like it's going to die. So I'm sitting here debating, and I think, man, if I can just get to the other side of that of this water, if I can just get on the other side, then that's all. So all of a sudden, I got as fast as I could. I mean, I was probably doing 85 through that tunnel. In fact, I thought a princess died getting killed in a tunnel. So, you know, I'm, I'm flying through that tunnel, and the car is dying. And I'm getting through that tunnel, and I, you know, it climbs up to the other side, and I got off, and I pulled over there on the interstate. And then I called Jeffrey, and I said, find a U-Haul dolly, because I'm broke down. We sat there fooling around for probably three hours on the interstate. I was praising the Lord, because in some ways he had split the sea. He had got me across the water. He had gotten me through. And I was on the side that I wanted to be on, close to home. And it was like the Lord was saying, see, I still split the seas. I I got you to where you needed to be. Well, the story's not over before we pray. (laughs) It gets worse. (laughs) We we finally get home. And um, this morning, I got stuck at the top of my driveway with my truck this dolly and this car. I'm toting gravel, trying to get unstuck. Jeffrey's already come to get ready for praise, worship, and practice. Sheila comes up there, and finally I just said, Lord, help me get this truck unstuck. And sure enough, we pulled on out. We got up to the interstate, and I said, Sheila, I said, one tire is no longer even strapped. There's no way that we can do this by ourselves. So, you know, Sheila's just praying. So we're making our way here. And our prayer was, God, get us to the church. We pulled up in the parking lot. I promise you, God is my witness. We pulled up into the parking lot. We circled and the thing rolled off the dolly in the parking lot while I was driving my truck right next to a parking spot right there by Sheila's car. So, you know, we, we serve a great God. And, and uh, he just, I think he leaned over the banisters of heaven. And I said, I think he called a couple of angels. He said, y'all go and load that car now. <laughs> and uh, we'll get it by the help of some of these men after church. We'll get it back on the dolly and we'll get it to Dr. Rogers and, and we'll let him look at it. But let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord, that you're in the little things. And sometimes the little things can be big things. 
Dear Lord, all along the interstate, all along this journey, that car could have rolled off that dolly. I didn't know how bad it was, but you did. And you kept it where you wanted it, across those bumps and Jackson roads and bridges and twists and turns. You, you, you even pulling up into this off Raymond Road. It's such a, a deep, difficult place there. And then you dropped the car off the dolly at exactly where it needed to be. So, Lord, we give you all the glory and honor. You alone are be, to, be word, to be praised, and you alone are worthy. And I pray, dear Lord, that this would encourage those who may be here today, and they're praying over something that is going on in their life. May they understand that, God, you hear and that through the power and presence of your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Dear Lord, you will answer in your time and not in ours. Sometimes, dear Lord, the Bible says many are the afflictions of a righteous man, Psalm 34, but you deliver him from them all. And you reminded me you cannot deliver unless we are in affliction. So sometimes you put us in those difficult places so that you can deliver us and we will give you testimony. So Lord, may we rethink our understanding of those storms of life as Doug spoke of this morning. I pray, dear Lord, that you would bless and anoint the preaching of your word in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I want you to take your Bibles and we are in a series in Genesis, and we're looking at a man by the name of Jacob. Last week, we had an opportunity to, to get to know Jacob, or we have over the last several weeks. And if you remember, Jacob, Isaac, and Rebekah send Jacob to her brother, that is Laban. And so Laban, Laban is there. And uh, we said this, he's the equivalent of a used car. I mean, a used camel salesman. I mean, you know, Laban is a very, very unique individual. And, and Laban is going to be a tool in the hand of God by which God is going to break Jacob. Now, listen to me closely. Sooner or later, in every life of every believer, you and I are going through, a, we will go through times of brokenness. Just like a horse. I remember Steve Taylor, a friend of mine, he was a, uh, if there was such a thing as a horseaholic, he was that. He loved horses. In fact, when he pastored First Baptist Church in Durant, Oklahoma, he would have Roundup Sunday where all those people in Oklahoma and the members of his church, they had nearly a thousand to ten one Sunday, but a mo many of those came on horses. One time I was with Steve. He had a beautiful gray dapple looking horse, very unique animal. And he was brushing. Well, first of all, we went to get to the animal that was in a pasture of a friend of his. And so he called this horse. And when he did, the horse just kind of kept running around. He said, you see that horse right there? He said, you know why that horse is not obeying me? And I'm its master. It's because of the influence of the horse that was in the pasture next to that horse. He said, the horse in the pasture next to my horse, his behavior has affected my horse and made him somewhat rebellious. And he basically went on to say this, because he eventually caught that horse and he reminded that horse of who his master was. Sometimes in your life and in my life, God is in the process of putting us through affliction, difficulties because he's chipping away those things that don't look like Jesus. Again, that word hagios is that word, that Greek word for holy. That word hagiosmos, that word for sanctification, is a play on that word holy. In other words, God is conforming us into the image of who? Of Jesus Christ. So he's chipping away everything that does not look like who? Jesus. So Jacob is in the school of hard knocks. And he is in the company of his professor, and that professor is his uncle Laban. Laban becomes a tool by which God is going to break Jacob. 
And sometimes we said this, God breaks us by putting a mirror in front of us or putting us in the company of somebody who looks a lot like us, right? We said that's why family reunions can be so frightening at times because you're around people that may look a little bit like you. Now last week, uh, you remember Laban had tricked, he had tricked Jacob. Jacob worked, 84-month finance plan. He had worked for seven years to get his bride, Rachel. On the night of the honeymoon, on the night of the wedding, Jacob probably was a little bit intoxicated. He probably had a little bit too much wine. There weren't bright lights. He went into the tent. He consummated the marriage only to wake up the next morning and realize that he didn't have Rachel laying next to him. He had who? He had Leah. And so Leah, you remember, he wraps that blanket up. He goes running down there to his uncle Laban's tent. And he says, what have you done to me? You've deceived me. And you remember, I think it's 29, 26. You remember Laban looked at him and said, um, we, don't put, we don't put the younger ahead of the older here. And we said that was the first knock of God's hammer and chisel into the life of Jacob because Jacob had done what? He had deceived his father and he had stolen the blessing. He was the younger and he was answering his own prayer. So anyway, what happens is, and we pick up, and and what I'm going to have to do, I'm going to probably have to tell a little bit of this to kind of move us quickly, but in chapter 29, verse 31, do you see that? Chapter Genesis 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant. She gave birth to a son. Now she begins, she begins to give birth. Um, Sheila used to call it fertile, fertile myrtle. I mean, Leah is putting out sons. Reuben, Simeon, Judah, man, they are just coming one behind the other. Now, look at chapter 30, beginning at verse 1. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became what? Well, that's strange, isn't it? I thought Rachel Rachel was the prima donna. I thought she was the one that just kind of glided through the place because, you know, Leah was plain. She was homely. The Bible said she had weak eyes. But here Rachel is jealous of her sister. And so she said to Jacob, you're looking at verse one, give me children or I'll die. And Jacob became angry with her. He said, am I in the place of God who's kept you from having children? Then she said, what? Here is Bilhah, my servant, sleep with her. Now, immediately, radar, spiritual antennas should have gone up and Jacob should have said, whoa, no way. I remember my grandfather Abraham. I remember Hagar. I remember my step-uncle Ishmael. Uh, You know, I remember all of the dynamic. uh, No, I'm not going there. But he didn't do that, did he? He said, well, it sounds good to me. And so he sleeps with Bilhah. Now we said this, there's a principle here. Every compromise that you and I make with the world, the flesh, and the devil will always carry consequences. Every compromise, every choice you and I make where we turn our back on the word of God, on the will of God, and we embrace this, we embrace the devil, the world, the things of this world, it will always carry consequences. And we said this, if you looked at chapter 35, verse 22, you can flip there. Chapter 35, verse 22, who sleeps, eventually, who sleeps with Bilhah? Reuben. Reuben is the oldest son of Jacob. He is the oldest child of Jacob and Leah. And so here, Jacob brings Bilhah into that home And before long, he has a major mess because now his son Reuben will eventually down the road sleep with his maidservant Bilhah. Now, I want you to look, well, you don't have to look, but in chapter 49, verses 1 through 4, when Jacob is getting ready to die, he calls all of his 12 sons in, every one of them, from Reuben down to Benjamin. 
And when he comes to Reuben, first one, he says, Reuben, he says, listen, you're, at, you're unstable. You're unstable as the water. And because you went in and slept with my maidservant, you will no longer be a mighty man of God. Well, let me tell you something, folks. Listen closely. Jacob couldn't just point his finger at Reuben. Jacob had compromised the will and the word of God. I wrote this down. I see a lot of parents blaming their grown children, but often it is a reflection of a parent's poor life lived out, especially when their children were in those formative years. Children a lot of times get caught up in alcohol and drugs and begin to sleep around. They steal. They get caught up into crime. Listen, I wrote this down. Nothing stays in the closet with kids. Mom, dad, when you bring sin or you compromise God's word, God's will in your life, listen, when you do that, the consequences often are reaped in the life of your children. Nothing stays in the closet. My mom, years ago, I got tickled at her, but when I was, a, I guess I was probably about 13, my mom got a recipe for muscadine wine. And she had one of these old planter peanut jars. And so she, she slipped around and she made muscadine wine. Now, if you're not familiar, if you're not from the country, muscadines grow out in the, in the rural areas, out in the country, a lot like a grape. Uh, they're sweet, they're good tasting, make great jelly, wine, and, and uh, I'll tell you in a minute how I know that. But, uh, but anyway, my mom decided that she was going to make muscadine wine. She had that old planter's peanut jar, so she put it all together, did that recipe, did everything. And, and my aunt, my aunt did the same thing. Now, my aunt put hers behind the couch, hid it from my uncle and the rest of the family. My uncle was watching a football game one Sunday. When all of a sudden that thing had been building up pressure in that planter's peanut jar, it was sealed up and it blew up and it went all over that living room. Well, moms didn't get that far because my sister and I, we were rummaging around in closets and we saw that planter's peanut jar in there and it was full of, of, a, of a lavender looking colored substance that had lemons. I think it even had some lemons. So we, we thought, man, what is this? So I, I tested it. Man, it tasted good. <laughs> I said, man, this is some good stuff. She tasted it. Listen, we literally in time drank that entire planter peanut jar full of muscadine wine. I'll never forget the day my mom walked into that closet, looked in there, and screamed and said, what happened to my wine? Now, she was trying to hide it in the closet, and we had consumed every drop of it. <laughs> Listen, parent, you and I cannot compromise when it comes to sin. We cannot compromise with the enemy, because when you and I do that, you can be rest assured. I'm going to tell you, folks, you listen to me. There's been many a child, many a grown child that has told me why they're rebellious. And a lot of times their rebellion is linked to the closet sin of a parent. You may say, well, I can handle a beer or two in the refrigerator. Yeah, you may be able to, but that one coming behind you may be genetically programmed. His tendency, her tendency may be to be an alcoholic. She can't handle, he can't handle what you can handle. So here Jacob bring, and, 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 and Rachel bring Bilhah into this home and they begin to wreak havoc. Now, there's a couple of things. Verse chapters, uh, third, chapter 30, verses 1 through 24, I just kind of called that re reproduction rivalry. I, I was desperate for an outline here. Because... What happens is, and I want you to see this, that in verse 7 of chapter 30, Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again, bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won, and so I have named him Nephtali. Now let me, everybody look this way. Her first child was Dan. And let me tell you, when you start going back and researching 
Israelite history and you look back in the Old Testament, nothing came good out of the Danites. Nothing. So look at verse 9 of chapter 30. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her maidservant Zilpah, gave her to Jacob as his wife, and Leah's servant servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad. Now what do you have here? You have Leah and Zilpah in one corner. You have Rachel and Bilhah in the other and they are a reproduction rivalry going on. They're both, they are both competing for the affection of Jacob. Now I wrote this down. This is important. Sometimes in our day, children become a commodity. Have you noticed that? Children become a commodity in order to gain the affection or to gain the affection of Jacob. These women were competing and children were just a mere commodity. In fact, you'll read on over there. Let me, let me see. I think it's in verses 14 through 17, chapter 30. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields. He found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. You say, well, man, that's a weird thing. What in the world is mandrakes? They were an aphrodisiac. This was the Viagra of their day. So here you have Rachel. She says, um, she says, listen, give me some of those mandrakes, Rachel said to Leah, verse 15. But she said to her, that is Leah to Rachel, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well. Hey, look, 50 Shades of Grey doesn't have nothing on the Bible. You want to you want to see you want to see romance and sex go to the Bible. And so here you have these women now that are competing. Very well Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I've hired you with my son's mandrakes, so he slept with her that night. And they all lived happily ever after. But I thought here, when I was reading this and studying, I thought, you know, God, how today in our society, children have become a commodity. Children today are aborted, they're abused, they're swapped around in severed marriages as if they're some kind of commodity. In fact, let me say this, sometimes if we're not careful, children become the bargaining chip or the weapon of a bitter spouse to assault the other one. Sometimes children today become a commodity for government subsidy. Sean Boyd, who is referred to as super vice lord in this city, who is a member of a gang, who has lived his life but come to Christ. Sean one day in in our LTG together in the office, and you need to pray for Sean. Sean made this statement. I wrote it on the wall of my office. I said, Sean, how is it on the news that so many young men and women are being killed on these streets and you'll see a mother who is standing there in front of the TV. She's putting on a show, but you don't see any tears. And Sean made this statement. He said, because in the hood, people think it is not the outcome, but the income that matters. He said, the only grief in some homes in the hood is simply this. They are not turning a trick. They're not in prostitution any longer. And they're not bringing money into the household. Or they're not selling drugs. And because of that, they're not bringing any money into the household. And he said, Brother Jeff, that's the truth. You think, well, the Bible, the Bible has to be different. Look at chapter 31, verses 14 through 16. Rachel and Leah felt like a commodity. Now, everyone looked this way. Jacob had been courting Rachel 
and wooing her and working seven years to acquire her in marriage. And on the night of the honeymoon, Uncle Laban just, he just switched them out. And he had the power to do that. But I want you to hear the heart of these two women. In, in chapter 31, verse 14 through 16, then Rachel and Leah replied, do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what he has paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. So do whatever, they're talking to Jacob. So do whatever you need to do. Wow. I often think today that because of the way people are raising children and the apathy and indifference, they are aborted, they are abused, they are abandoned. Children today, listen, America is going to be judged for how we treated this, these children. But if we're in the last days, in Matthew chapter 24, Reggie, I think it's verse 12, in the King James it says, the natural love will wax cold. That's the King James. You know what that means? The word natural means of the maternal love of a mother to her child. And it says as we get toward the end of time, as we get toward the rapture of the church, as God begins to invade this world with His Son Jesus Christ in a literal rapture of His church, the Bible says that women will become more and more concerned about themselves. They'll get caught up in the pleasures of sin and they'll no longer have any time and they won't care about their children. They'll abort them, they'll abuse them, they'll abandon them. They'll just do whatever. Children were a commodity. I had two young men sitting in Cameron's office. They had come in and before long they, they said, we want a candy bar, gave them a candy bar, gave them a Coke, sat down there. Both of these young men, I think one was about 18, the other one about 20. And I began to talk to them about their life. And at one point, one of them looked. And I asked them, I said, are you married? They said no, because they had alluded to having children. And one, one young man looked at the other one, and they both smiled at each other. And I said, well, do you have any children? This one young man, he said, well, I've got one. I said, are you married too? He said, no. He said, I hope to be. He looked at the other guy, and he said, and I said, well, how many do you have? He said, I've got seven children. He said the first one, and he smiled. He said, I fathered when I was 12 years old. And I asked him, I said, uh, I said, do you feel a responsibility? Do you feel some sense of responsibility? And so I wrote these words down after that. I said, anyone in the sound of my voice, and that means on our website, if you bring a child into this world and you fail to provide and care for that child, according to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, you are worse than an infidel. An infidel is a hell-bound sinner. And I believe you will stand before God and give an account. There are cities in America, communities in America, and even churches in America that are silent on this issue. And for those pastors who may listen by way of website, for those pastors who excuse it as a social issue rather than a moral and spiritual issue, I believe that they will one day face God and they will give an account. If you brought a child into this world, you take responsibility for that child. If somebody else has done that, you ask for forgiveness from God. You take responsibility if you can. If you cannot and somebody else has, then you move on and let them, you just stay away. They're cleaning up your mess, so don't mess it up. You didn't ask for that, but I thought I'd give it anyway. And that's why this church is not full. Number two, look at the request here. In chapter 30, 25 through 33, Four, we find here in chapter, 
chapter 30, beginning at verse 25, and we'll move quickly. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so I can go back to my own homeland. Give me my wives, my children for whom I've served you. I'll be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. And basically what happened is when Jacob ends this second 84-month payment plan, And he now, after 14 years plus, in fact, it'll amount to 22 years, I think, by the end of it, he's worked for Rachel seven years. He's worked for Leah seven years. He now has two maidservants. He's now begun to realize that, hey, I'm not getting anywhere staying here with Laban. So it's time for me to go back home. I need to move on. Now, there's a principle here. Look at verse 29 through 30 of chapter 30. Because... Here in verse 29, Jacob said to him, that's Laban, you know how hard I've worked for you, how your livestock have fared under my care. This, the little you had before I came has increased greatly. The Lord has blessed you wherever I've been. But now then, when may I do something for my own household? In essence, what he's saying is I've worked hard and it's amounted to nothing. That's what Jacob is saying. So Jacob says to Laban, I'm I'm going home. I've made you a wealthy man, but nothing's happened for me. Now, there's a principle here. One of the hallmarks of a follower of Christ is a strong work ethic. I want you to hear me. I had a a man who's an engineer, retired engineer. He made this statement. He he heard a sermon one time where I was preaching on Ephesians chapter 6 where it talks about slaves and masters which we could incorporate that and use it in our modern day, in our Western world, as employer-employee. And he thanked me for that. He said, because how often do we no longer hear this idea that as a believer, as a follower of Christ, the Bible commands that you and I have the highest work ethic of all. It's part of our testimony. In fact, Paul said this, you're not simply working when the boss is around. Paul said you're working when the boss is not around. It's part of your testimony. So here you have Jacob, whose testimony is to Laban, a hard worker, and has resulted in a growth in Laban's business. So finally there comes a point that Laban says this, and I've got to move quickly and we'll close. Laban says to Jacob, listen, I don't want you to leave. Man, I can tell you are blessing my household. I had a man one time came to me. His marriage was in a wreck. Family was in a wreck. He was was literally compromising and selling his soul for his business. He was in a steel business. And I looked at him and I said, let me tell you a story. I said, you can sell your soul and you can compromise your marriage and your family. I said, but in the end, I said, one day you're going to die and they're going to pack all your stuff up out of your office and they're going to set it outside the door. And I said, what you need to do is you need to go sit down with the boss and you need to have this kind of discussion. Listen, I'm a hard worker, give you an honest day's work and I want you to know something. What I'm getting paid is not adequate. He came back the next week, smiled, looked at me. I, I said, you had, that, you had that discussion, didn't you? You went to your boss. You had that discussion. He said, I sure did. He said, he made me vice president of the company. Listen, the Bible says we have not because we ask not. And when you and I are working and doing everything as unto the Lord, my friend, there may come a point that you can sit down with a corporate head and say, listen, I am too valuable to this company. You can't afford to lose me. You'd be the kind of worker that if you were to walk out, it would be a major problem to the company that you work for because of your work ethic. This was Jacob. And I want you to know something. God, listen, Jacob enters into this agreement. God, listen, I wrote this down. God loved Laban. Because God is also not only breaking Jacob, he's also breaking Laban. So a deal is drawn. You know what Jacob says, and we've got to move quickly. Jacob's a shepherd. He said, I'll tell you what we'll do. He said, he said don't give me nothing. Don't give me nothing. Now in the Middle East, you had white, white sheep, you had black goats. Very seldom would you see, but every once in a while you'd see streaked, spotted, speckled. So Jacob said this. He said, listen, 
He said, we're going to go through all the flocks and we're going to separate all of the brown goats, black, I mean the, uh, the speckled, the spotted, and we're going to put all those under the care of your son's Laban. And I'm going to take Laban, I'm going to take your flock of white sheep and black goats. And I'm going to carry them a long ways off and I'm going to take care of your flock. He stacks the deck against himself. And then he says this, and we'll let God decide. I'm going to put myself in the hand of God. And every white sheep, black goat, every time he understood recessive genes and dominant genes, undoubtedly this guy was smart. In fact, there comes a point, you may say, you can read it, he, uh, takes, he takes poplar branches, these pillings, and he actually puts them in water, and they, they're still trying to figure out that one. Did that have something to do with it? And some say chemically, possibly it could. And, and I've, I've read experts that said, we honestly don't know. But Jacob had been studying sheep for a long time. He was a shepherd. He understood recessive and dominant. He stacked the deck against him. And then he looked at Laban and he said, now let's see what God does. And you know what God began to do? God began to bless the faithfulness of Jacob. Before long, these white sheep, these black goats, I mean, they are speckled and spotted everywhere. And they are the strongest of the flock. And these are beginning to grow. They're beginning to accumulate. And before long, Laban's sons in chapter 31, verse 1 and 2, they are irritated, they're jealous, because all of a sudden they see the hand of God truly is on Jacob. John Phillips said this when they entered that deal. He said, Laban, you remember I told you Laban was a used camel salesman. Smoked a cigar. He looked at Jacob and said, there's one born every day. John Phillips said this. He said, Laban must have looked at Jacob as though he was crazy when he introduced this idea. Everybody knew that eastern sheep were mostly solid white and rarely brown and that eastern goats were predominantly black and rarely spotted or speckled. But the principle is this. Jacob was willing to put himself in the hand of God and accept whatever God's will was. I wrote down here, young families, there is power in that kind of living. Are you listening? If you are, if you are under, if you are 70 or under, stand up because you need to hear this. If you're under 70, you're over 70, it's too late. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> now, all, especially young families, because listen, and don't think I'm being too hard on car dealers. But I've been, I've been counseling people for 35 years. And I can tell you the biggest problem when people come in there and sit down at that table, they are financially in hock. They are in debt. Their marriage is under the stress and strain of living beyond their means. They don't know how to save a penny. They get a credit card application, buddy. They sign it. Listen, you are robbing. Every one of you, listen. You ought to be putting yourself financially where you can bless your children and grandchildren and especially those children and grandchildren who are committed to ministry. Car dealer. You ever heard this? This deal won't last long. You walk out that door, you may not be able to make this deal tomorrow. This is the last car at this price. My financial manager is in a good mood right now, and he wants to make a deal today. How much can you pay a month? Young families, let me tell you how to buy a car, let me tell you how to buy a home. Let me tell you how to handle your finances. You never make a single purchase at all without the approval, first of all, of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, Lord, I'm getting ready to buy a car. Lord, 
There are Chevrolets, there are Toyotas, there are Nissans, there are Fords, there are Chryslers. Lord, there are all kinds of cars, there are all kinds of deals. Lord, these I feel like when I pull up at a car dealership, I'm in, a, in the Pacific Ocean in, a, in, in, a, in the midst of sharks. I don't know what to do, Lord. You allow God to lead you. You pray. You ask God's counsel. You pray over that. Hey, listen, any deal, any deal you got to make right now, you better run from that. What is the devil called? He's called, listen, Jesus called him mammon. You know what Jesus' best term for, for Satan was? Money. Well, I want you to listen. This is how you solve it. You pray for a long time. You allow God to do whatever His will is. And you accept that. You go to buy a car, you've prayed about it, and you're looking at a vehicle and you think, uh, don't do what Sheila and I did. We were poor as dirt. We hadn't even been married very long. And we were over there at Heron Gear, I think. That's where we were. And we were going to buy a Monte Carlo. Now, they were sporty back then. So, I mean, you know, they looked pretty good. And this, this sales guy, he, he started telling us all this. It's the last one at this price. And you can't, you got, can you put anything down on it? We had $80 to our name. And we put 80, she's laughing. We put $80 on that car to hold it. Now, my dad, I don't know how I got in touch with my dad, but I called my dad, and my dad said, uh, Doug, he said, you did what? You go back and get that $80 right now. Now, I'm a grown man married. You go back and you get that $80 right now, son. That's about the stupidest thing you could have ever done. You fell for the oldest trick in the book. You and I will go buy a vehicle. We bought a 1979 brand new Ford pickup truck stripped down with just the very basics, but it was a great vehicle. And you may say, well, let me, let me tell you something, and I know I've got to close, but let me say this. You can sit down for a moment. I know you don't want to because you're thinking, man, we're getting ready to go. <laughs> this is what you say. When, a, when, when the dealer or the real estate agent or the credit card company or whoever comes up, see, I am tricked the worship leader. Now y'all got it. Y'all really got the deck, deck stacked against me, so we're going to close. Go ahead and stand back up. What was I saying, Reggie? I didn't say let us close and let us pray. Yeah, that's it. When the deck is stacked against you, let me tell you how Sheila and I buy a car now. We don't. <laughs> you spend uh, $400 a month in a car payment, $200, $100 a month in um, insurance, tag, and all the stuff that comes with it, you may decide, hey, we could buy an old clunker and just get collision, always get, I meant liability, just get liability and drive that sucker. And if you wreck it, you just walk away from it. Like Doug told us yesterday about that car, he said, just run it down in the ditch, scrape the model number off of it and take the tag. <laughs> when Listen, when the deck is stacked against you, young people, young families, listen to me. When you're buying a car, when you're buying a house, when you're making a major move and somebody begins to tighten the pressure, they're now pressuring you to make a decision. You listen, this is what you say. You just simply say, I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to go eat lunch. We're going we're to really pray about this. 
And, and I don't know what we're going to do. Now, let me say this. Hey, I'll, I'll buy you lunch. Look, why don't you go ahead and take the car and drive it to Chick-fil-A over there and, and, and eat? Or the real estate agent tells you, listen, this is $2,000 a month till the rapture, but that really doesn't matter. I think you can swing that. When you and I are committed to the will of God, when we begin to pray about every decision that we're making, especially financial ones, big decisions, big purchases, and we just simply say, you know what I'm going to do? We're just going to go away. We're going to pray about this. We may even sleep on this tonight, or, or we may take a couple of days and really pray. Oh, listen, my finance, man, the end of the month, oh, we've got special deal right now. It may not be here tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know all that. And you be godly and you be Christ-like because that man is also trying to make a living. And some of them are hurting. And you never be rude to a real estate agent. My sister's been a real estate agent for 20-something years and I grieve for her even now as to how professing Christians have lied and cheated and swindled her. So you don't be rude or disrespectful to anybody. But I'm telling you this, at the end of the day, when you look at that car dealer, when you look at that real estate agent, it's a major purchase. You say, we're going to pray about this. And they look at you and they tell you, they start tightening the grip and they start saying what could possibly happen. You just simply say, my God's bigger than that. And if this is God's will, it'll still be here tomorrow. I'll close with this illustration. Emily back there was buying a car. She wanted a Honda um, coupe, a Honda Accord two-door with a spoiler and standard manual transmission. So we go up to Patty Peck and, and sure enough, this salt and pepper haired guy comes out and he says, how y'all doing? And we begin to talk to him, begin to tell him what we wanted. And he said, well, we don't have nothing like that on the lot. He said, let me go check on the computer. So he got on the computer. Well, then he began to talk to us. He began to talk to me. And, 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 and his marriage had fallen apart, alienated from his kids. His whole life was crashing down around him. You see, that's what you're worried about. You're not there to buy a car. You're there to minister to probably a hurting man or woman that's trying to pay their bills and make ends meet. You're, you're ministering to the, to the real estate agent. You're not there at the bank getting a loan. You're there by divine appointment to stretch the boundaries of God's kingdom. That's what you're about. So that man, he just began to open up. He began to tell us about his marriage. He began to tell us about his children. This man at one point was sitting there and, and, and he was just weeping and crying, pouring out his heart. At a certain point outside of Patty Peck, I put my arm around that man. I prayed with that man. That man became a dear friend. Let me tell you about that man. That man is one of the leaders at Morrison Heights Baptist Church right now. And that man has given thousands of dollars to this church repeatedly through our offering and even when he's not a member of this church. Oh, by the way, car? Well, man, we prayed. This guy, listen... He was walking on clouds. He got back in church, sorted out family issues. And today this man is a great man of God and loves this church. Car? You remember Emily wanted a Honda Accord two-door coupe, spoiler, manual transmission. This guy looked, he got on the computer, he said, there's not a car like that in the whole southeastern part of the United States. We walked out there and Sheila said, well, the Lord will provide. You want to guess? God is my witness. Just like he rolls cars out the parking lot. God is my witness. A lease turned in, pulled in, white two-door Honda Accord with manual transmission, two-year-old vehicle. And my wife looked at this man and she said, hey, what about that one? That man cried all over again because God was showing that man something. 
We walked out there. Young lady was turning it in. It only had one thing that Emily didn't ask for. It had leather interior. And the leather interior she had added and could not be figured into the negotiating price of the car. So my daughter drove out that afternoon. What year was that, Emily? It was 1999? Okay, it was a 1999 car, and it was 2001 when she got the vehicle. Emily, what are you driving this morning? 14 years later, that Honda two-door Honda Coupe with the spoiler leather interior is still driving. Hey, look this way. Look. Jeffrey Ducker V.L. Stanfield took his shoe off when he was preaching at First Baptist New Orleans. He said that was the best way to get people's attention. When the Egypt, when the Israelites, when they left Egypt and they wandered for 40 years, the Bible says this, and their soles of their shoes, they had carried the hide of sea cows. God said, you're not going to use the hide of the sea cows to make any more soles for your shoes. You're going to use it for the tabernacle. Well, God, what about our shoes? Because we got to wait till a whole generation dies off now. You know what the Bible says? It said the soles of their shoes didn't wear out. Well, Emily may just drive that car right onto the rapture. A man's walking with Jesus. His family's restored. He's a leader in a sister church. And the man has given thousands of dollars to his church. And the testimony to the entire Patty Peck group was simply this. We serve a sovereign, great Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, like you have reminded us in these last two Sundays, you part seas. You get men pulling car, you get men with a car that's dying up under Mobile Bay Bridge and up under that tunnel, dear Lord. You, you deliver us through those difficult times. Many are the afflictions of a righteous man, but you deliver him from them all. We thank you for that. We pray, dear Lord, that if we just will lean on you and trust you in those big requests, those big purchases, those life-changing moves that we make, if we'll just trust you, Lord, You'll make a way where there seems to be no way. And when you answer, it is always right, it's always our best, and it will always bless us and take care of every need that we have. Lord, may we always be Christ-like. Whether we're on a dealership floor, whether we're dealing with a real estate agent in a house, may we always let them see Jesus. May we understand that we're not there to get alone with the finance uh, manager. We're not there, dear Lord, to talk to the dealer. We're not there to talk to the... We are there simply to minister to people and then you'll take care of everything else. Lord Jesus, we love you. I pray, dear Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know you, that today, right now, this moment, that they would surrender their life and become a follower of Christ. And that, Lord, you will begin to use them a powerful way. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.